HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Ben to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet. Learn more at bentotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month. This week on Meat and 3, we're spotlighting the people who prepare our meat before it reaches our plates. We hear from whole animal butchers, the brains behind a meat vending machine, California cattle ranchers, and a master of charcuterie who isn't using meat at all. It's like a smoked and grilled uh, center stock of the broccoli, and then it gets uh, finished with some mustard barbecue sauce and sauerkraut. Ranching and farming being as difficult as it is, you know, it's just one thing after another. And at some point, you just give up. I had a wild idea that if I learned butchery, maybe I could start to be kind of a link in the supply chain. Listen to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. My guest today is Reverend Dr. Heber Brown, a Baltimore pastor, community organizer, and farmer who founded the Black Church Food Security Network, an alliance of congregations growing food on church land. Reverend Brown, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I, we were just kind of getting connected, and, and I'm excited to have you on because I recently moved to Baltimore, and I, I haven't had a lot of guests on from Baltimore. So that, that makes me really happy to kind of start to, to bring the voices of Baltimore um, onto the show. So really excited to have you for that reason. Um, and, you know, I invited you on to talk about your work with the Black Church Food Security Network and farming and food sovereignty in Black communities overall. and I was getting ready for this conversation and I was looking at your social media and um, I saw this tweet you sent um, a couple weeks ago and I thought it would just be a really cool way to kick off this conversation. So I'm going to read it. Is that okay? (laughs) All right. So here's what you said. 
Today, I posted pictures of this morning's harvest from my garden, and I will continue to do so. However, I hope you see beyond the pictures of produce. I'm not just trying to show you tomatoes. I'm trying to share a way of being that can help free us all. So I guess my question is, what is that way of being? And what does it have to do with tomatoes? What a question and what a great intro to this conversation. <laughs> I braced myself because I didn't know what tweet you were going to read. Right, right. You're like, oh, I tweeted something? Oh, what? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that um, the way of being that I was referencing is really a very ancient way, a, a way that many peoples of this earth um, Know, an know in an ancestral way, which is basically living closer to the land, living in greater mm -hmm. harmony and alignment with the land and with nature and with and as a member of this, you know, environment. So this, um, you know, this pandemic has been so heavy and so disastrous and so heartbreaking for so many. And, you know, I also hear from a number of people about some of the the silver linings that mm -hmm. have emerged this year as well. One of them for a whole lot of people is they've been made to slow down enough to pay attention and be present and be closer to land and closer to um, food. I mean, food has right. been on the minds of a lot of people this year as well. And here in Maryland, when the governor um, mandated a, a stay-at-home order and set the day and the time for when it would take place, many people rushed to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. There were long lines at the stores to get food. Food was on our minds. And in the subsequent weeks and months, people around the country started seeing shelves at their local grocery store bare or not as full as they're used to seeing. We started hearing uh, and seeing news clips about the strain that food companies were experiencing this year. Um, the plight and struggles of farm workers were highlighted in some, not enough, media outlets. Um, and so food has been on a lot of people's minds as well. And so I found though that another thing that has happened is a lot of people started gardening. Yeah. Um, a lot of people in my circle started gardening. I started seeing articles about people who are gardening. And I think this year activated something very ancient within us. Um, I don't think it was coincidental that a lot of your friends, a lot of my friends, a lot of people are were drawn back to the land and drawn to gardening. I think yeah. something got turned on that perhaps was... Uh, um, made to be put to sleep, lulled to sleep or put into a coma because of the never ending cycle of capitalism and crushing our humanity in so many different ways. And so, yeah, that way of being involves all of that and honoring just honoring the earth in a way to say it, um, it can ground us. You yeah. know what I mean? Like the earth can ground us. And this year we've needed to be grounded and even more than church services and, and Instagram spirituality, the earth has served as an amazing pastor to my soul this year. It's really grounded me. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, so tell me a little bit about what um, the work that you're doing. I, I mean, obviously, it relates directly to, to this concept you're talking about. But what is the, the Black Church Food Security Network? Um, what does it actually look like on the ground today? Yeah. So what it looks like is it looks like helping churches to um, grow food on their land, on the land that they steward, um, the land that they have title to. Um, we are excited to be helping churches do that, not only all over Baltimore, but we're supporting churches in Virginia, Ohio, and many other places as well by walking them through the steps of how to take the land that they steward um, and start growing on it. And um, yeah, it's been an amazing journey. We've been doing this now for five years as a way to create um, a counter food system, a black led food system, to be frank, one that is that helps to meet the needs of the African-American community in some very real and everyday um, kitchen table kind of ways. And so that's one thing that we do. We help churches grow food on their land. But two, we also help to uplift the profile of farmers uh, to churches. We want more churches buying their produce, meats, and value-added items from faith-based organizations. Mm. Um, I'm sorry, from farmers. <laughs> we, we want faith-based organizations. We want churches buying produce, meats, and value-added items from farmers. Right. Other um, direction. <laughs> yeah, other direction. Other yeah. direction. And especially small farmers, right, who don't have the huge contracts with whatever mega corporation, who don't get like big USDA contracts or whatever or grants or what have you. Um, but, yeah, having churches to buy from farmers just makes sense. Um, so much of our holy scriptures are filled with metaphors and stories uh, about food and the land. but. In our everyday, to, you know, everyday lives, especially for those of us who live in more urban environments, we we don't, you know, we're living we're living at distance from like mustard seeds. Mm -hmm. Talked about in the Bible, having the faith the size of a mustard seed, and many people, you know, in many churches have never seen a mustard seed. So, the, mm. so the scripture doesn't land as well when you don't even know what a mustard seed is, or when Jesus curses a fig tree it's like if the only figs you know come wrapped in some package at the store then you don't really get you know the scripture doesn't land in the same way and so we help churches to also buy from farmers and not just buy from farmers but come into relationship with farmers share the story hear about their families um and do more than just this uh transactional uh, relationship, but a deeper transformative one. Right. I hadn't thought about that, um, that connection between scripture and food. Um, that's really interesting. I was going to ask you just sort of more generally, like why churches? Why? I mean, I know you have this vision of, of food sovereignty and, and why are, are churches so central to this conversation? Um, I am one of many who, um, are disillusioned by how much electoral politics can do to really bring about our wildest dreams in mm. terms of the kind of community that we can have. Um, I think that electoral politics certainly has a place. I think voting has a place. 
but I have deep reservations with those who may believe that all we need to do is vote and everything is okay. If we just vote in the right people, everything will be okay. Right. I can't find that anywhere in the history of the United States. And so the argument falls flat for me. Um, even as I recognize its importance, um, government doesn't do it. Corporations don't do it. Mm-hmm. Corporations um, can do a lot of good. They'll donate a lot of money or a lot of items or show up with volunteers to do some good in local community. All that's great, fine, and wonderful. But the charitable efforts of corporations are not justice. The charitable efforts of corporations um, do not um, always contribute or lend themselves to the development of the beloved community or the nurturing of the beloved community that I think is pulling at the heartstrings of a lot of people in the country right now. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the space and place that has the bandwidth to at least halfway keep up with our wildest dreams, it's our faith-based organizations. Mm. Uh, these places, whether church, synagogue, mosque, temple, um, or other site of, of religious worship, but it's these places where imagination is welcome. In fact, it's imagination is considered sacred. We read books about like, you read in the, the Hebrew Bible about a God who makes the earth open up and who makes fire come from the sky and who sends rainbows as messages. Like, if that's not spiritual imagination, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> and we embrace these stories as sacred and they and and we keep on coming back to these spiritual circles and spaces over and over and over again right even when we know the story and like how it ends right so like mm-hmm. as a, I've been preaching for going on 20 years I've been pastoring for 12 years now and uh on Easter Sunday everybody who comes to church on Easter Sunday knows what the sermon is going to be about knows how the how the story ends, but we keep on coming. We keep on coming. And I think that we keep coming in part because these spaces help to curate a special environment that allows other parts of who we are to show up without shame. That Uh we can sing about a God we've never seen without eyes. We can shout and dance and celebrate and feel something deep within um, and I'm not trying to paint the picture as if churches, synagogues, mosques, temples are like panaceas. Like there is no problems there. They're all wonderful. Like right. a simple Google search will show you that that's not true. <laughs> what I do believe, though, is at its best, these spaces help to nurture um, and unlock something within us. And particularly for the African-American community, the black church has been the most viable and sustainable uh, institution for our people uh, since being uh, enslaved in this land. Mm. And when you go back to the roots of the Black church, the historic African-American Christian denominations and individual churches, they were founded um, to challenge racism, white supremacy, to challenge domination in the public square. It were, they were created to um, allow for space for Black people to stand fully in their own agency and dignity. Mm. And because of that, many uh, at many points along history's uh, march in this country, um, the Black church has shown up. It's not always fully honored and recognized in that way, but 
you know, so like, for example, we individualize Dr. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But I prefer to widen the lens and say, you know, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. used to be little Mike King, who was a, a member of somebody's Sunday school class and a congregation groomed him. They taught him, they corrected him, they shaped him. And he continued to blossom and made great impact on the world. The same could be said for uh, Ella Baker, for Rosa Parks, for Malcolm X. The black, the bosom of the black church has groomed world changers. And so mm-hmm. for me, it's important that our work be rooted uh, in the bosom of an institution that has shown the ability not just to produce some of the greatest human beings who've ever humaned, but also... Um, it has shown the ability to, ability to withstand racist violence and terrorism. Um, crosses have been burned on the front lawns of black churches. Black churches have been burned down throughout the country over the years. Sunday schools were bombed and killed little children in Sunday school. Pastors have been killed while teaching Bible study. Right. All of these things we can point to, right, and say these were efforts by racist, terroristic uh, forces that were seeking to snuff out this institution. We got to ask the question, why has the black church been target for this kind of racist violence over and over and over again, unless, unless Racist forces have recognized that when black people get together, steward land together, share life together, put their money together, help each other's children go to college and get jobs, plan, dream, grow, and continue to build, Mm -hmm. that when that happens, it's a threat to the system of racism, white supremacy. And so that's another reason why, and I'm going to end this sermon here, Lisa, but it's another reason why. Uh, that we focus our work within the black church. It's shown that it can take the worst that racist violence has and keep on bouncing back. Right. Well, and so you've got this institution that is so strong and, and powerful and central to the work you do. Is there is there space within that for um, you know farmers and and others to be involved in this this movement for food sovereignty that are not religious or not connected to the church and, and are maybe not, you know, involved in these faith communities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, and your question kind of provoked this thought in my head that, you know, gardening, farming and food is pro- are probably relics of our first religion. <laughs> so when I read in the Torah, when I read about the creation in scripture, the first responsibility and job that the creator gave Adama or Adam was a gardener. That's the first lane and role of duty and responsibility and vocation that is mentioned in the entire Bible. It was mentioned before Christianity was mentioned. It was mentioned before Jesus was mentioned. It was mentioned before Abraham, before Moses, before Jacob. It was mentioned before the Ten Commandments. 
gardening. Yeah. And that for me signals um, a part of the deep spirituality of farming, of gardening, of food, of cultivating life through soil and with soil. And so in that same spirit, for me, um, for those who are not Christian, for those who uh, don't embrace any religion, uh, but are just people of, of good conscience and who feel a certain connectedness to the land, um, there's definitely room. Mm-hmm. There's room because the scriptures make room for me. Right. So can you give me a sense of um, how many churches are growing food on their land, how widespread this this work is right now? It, I know I think it started in Baltimore and then you spread out. Is that right? Yeah, and our organization, right. We started... We started in 2015, um, really inspired by what our individual church at Pleasant Hope Baptist Church um, experienced. So we launched our garden at Pleasant Hope Baptist Church in 2010. And then five years later is when we launched the Black Church Food Security Network. And interestingly enough, we launched the Black Church Food Security Network in the midst of the Baltimore uprising after the murder of Freddie Gray. Um, and, and in the midst of the open rebellion here in the city of Baltimore. So word started spreading um, about what we were doing. I started calling pastors. Some started calling me. I was in communication with farmers. And bit by bit, step by step, we started growing churches, uh, started supporting churches who were growing here in Baltimore. We have about um, 10 or so here in the city of Baltimore. And then beyond Baltimore, and especially this year, more and more have formally come to um, become members of the network. So we're probably knocking on somewhere close to 50 altogether congregations that we are supporting in, in some way, shape or form. And they have different levels of engagement or membership with us. But what I've been sensitized to, especially this year as well, is that there are so many more churches that are growing food on their land, that are buying from farmers, that are in partnership with farmers, so many more than what our organization um, can, you know, has a finger on. And, and I'm thrilled about that. I'm thrilled that this thing is much bigger than even what we know. Right. Um, okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Bin to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet, founded by Ben Simon. After working for President Obama, Ben spent five years traveling the world for Greenpeace, campaigning on climate change and sustainable agriculture. He always kept his eye out for delicious food to bring back home. Now, with everyone's travels on hold and home cooking more important than ever, Bin subscriptions provide a way for home cooks to experience different food cultures each month and put together nourishing, delicious meals with the best pantry items on the planet. With Taste the World, get a new shipment of different best-in-class ingredients to explore a new cuisine each month, along with tips and tricks to help out. We're talking delicious, single-origin spices, cold-pressed olive oil, beautiful sauces, and lots of ways to use them. There's also an essential subscription which gets you a delicious assortment of heirloom, hard-to-find recipe staples. 
You can also get both each month with the full Bend to Table box subscription. Learn more at bendtotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month and Bend to Table will donate $10 to HRN. All right, this is Lisa Held. We're back. You're listening to The Farm Report. I've been talking to Reverend Dr. Heber Brown from the Black Church Food Security Network. So, Reverend, right before the break, um, you mentioned that the network was founded at the same time as the uprising in Baltimore um, in response to the murder of Freddie Gray. Can you talk a little bit more about how that moment contributed to um, the organization's founding and, and what it looks like today? Sure. So I was, um, once I saw what our garden, it's called Maxine's Garden, named after one of the members of our church who transitioned some years ago. But once I saw what Maxine's Garden was doing for our individual church, I started to think about what could happen if many more churches were doing the same thing and dare to work together in a systematic fashion. That was an idea that was just rolling around in my head until 2015. At that time, I was very active on a number of social justice fronts, but one of them was I was working with um, um, Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle and other organizations and groups that were pushing for police accountability and transparency in the state. And we were watching what was going on around the country with protests, very similar to this year. Very yeah. similar to this year, there were protests going on around the country in 2015, uh, 2014. And we were trying to work with activists and organizers to get legislators to pass legislation to um, institute greater accountability for the police force here in the state. They knocked down all of the bills and uh, did not. There were like 17 some bills that we were working through, trying to get passed through the Maryland General Assembly. None of them uh, went anywhere at that time. I left the Capitol. I left Annapolis disillusioned with the political process. And a few months after the end of that legislative session, Freddie Gray uh, dies in police custody. And one of the first things that happened was people started calling our church when the demonstration started happening, when the marches started happening, when corner stores were closed and tra public transportation was halted, when the school system closed a couple of days, all this stuff was going on, a curfew, our phone started ringing at our church and people started calling, asking for food. Food was our calling card. People mm. the, knew about the garden. That's what we are known for. And while the corner stores were closed and other places uh, in the communities that were nearest the epicenter of the uprising, they were calling us to ask for food. It, the problem was already dire before the uprising when it comes to the food environment in some of these communities. It remains so to be, you know, honestly, it remains so to this day. The problem was dire. Mm -hmm. but the uprising just took it to another level. And so they called us uh, for food. I called some, uh, some of our farmer friends, notably Aaliyah Frazier from Black at the time, she was farming on the ancestral land of Harriet Tubman. It's called Black Dirt Farm. She called oh, her right. friends and they started trucking food to Baltimore. And 
They trucked food to Baltimore and got it around the city. We were receiving food donations. We had food produce from our garden. I would pile it up on our church bus, drive it around to some of the corners where people were calling us. And what I realized after a couple of weeks of doing that was that that idea that I had of churches and farmers working together to create our own food system was now coming alive. And so shortly after that, I named it the Black Church Food Security Network. And you mentioned um, the connection between, you know, what was happening then in 2015 and then what we were seeing this year with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, protests happening around the country. Has has the um, the activism that um, has, you know, been really um, sparked all over the country this year, has that impacted um, your work and the organization's work at all? Certainly. Yeah, we had a lot more people calling us and reaching out this year and connecting with our mission and um, seeing the connections between food sovereignty and police brutality and police violence and anti-blackness. Like there's, there are connections and more and more people are seeing those connections, right? And so people who are marching in the street are marching because the system is flawed at its core. And they are saying, this is not mm-hmm. right. Things need to change. People need to be held accountable. There needs to be justice. For these families who've been impacted by state-sponsored violence in the local communities. Well, in the same way, when you make that systemic analysis around policing, then it can very easily be broadened to the other systems that impact the day-to-day aspects of our lives, right? And so from banking to uh, labor uh, to food Uh to education, you can keep on going. And what you'll find is there are deep systemic problems all around. And while individual charismatic personalities at rallies are wonderful and serve a purpose, you got to do something after the rally if you want the deepest expression of what you marched for to actually live in your day-to-day experience. Right. No march, no rally, or no demonstration is powerful enough to combat a system, a system that works in organized fashion 24-7, 365 to gain, obtain, and defend its own power. And so now that, you know, once you develop a clarity that individual charisma doesn't do it, Instagram activism doesn't do it, we got to roll up our sleeves and create the systems that can long outlive all of us and give our local communities and let me go to a smaller unit, give our families a better shot at a meaningful life without fear of that level of oppression. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, the system that, that you developed that, you know, is, is pairing churches and farmers and, and working towards food sovereignty is, is kind of, you know, a, kind of up against this, exploitative food system that you're talking about that's tied to all these these other issues um i think when you when we talk about this kind of work a lot of times what people will say is it's just it could never be big enough like it, it how do you sort of scale this work and and really um grow enough food that communities can feed themselves and take care of themselves how do you think about scale and and whether this kind of work can really um, displace the bigger exploitative system. Yeah, I think that um, 
when I think about scale, I used to think about scale up. Mm. And that's probably more of the default uh, way that a lot of people think about scaling. We scale up. But as I've continued to journey along this path, I've seen how faulty that idea is. Because you'll never, I mean, with, you know, back to your, your comment and your question, it'll be, it'll be near impossible to scale up big enough to challenge the Goliath of this extractive and exploitative system that, right. has, that has centuries uh, of experience dominating, right? And so instead of scaling up, I think the way to go is to scale deep, hmm. deep into relationships, deep into local communities. So is the goal to create one massive uh, Black-led food system, and you know, that takes on the nation and then the world? No. Okay. No, it's not. Because, in fact, to do that, the temptations will be so great to mimic some of the same behavior and some of the same mentality of this food system uh, that we are so in, encumbered by on so many sides. Mm-hmm. And so instead of going up, macro, go deep, micro food systems that are built and propped up on relationships. People who know somebody who know somebody, my neighbors, my friends, those I go to synagogue with, those I go to church with, those I go to temple or the mosque with. And so going deep is very important. In yeah. fact, one of the greatest activists and organizers of the 20th century, her name was Ella Baker. Ella Baker talked about relational organizing and prioritizing and centering our relationships with each other and letting that be the springboard from which we grow to do other things. And so, of course, my focus is food today. <laughs> But yeah. maybe for somebody the focus is education or child care or health, you can take the same spirit of what we're doing and apply it to other arenas of your life, your day-to-day life. So if you think about the systems that we interact with on the daily basis that in different ways dominate and exploit and oppress, I love sitting with people and dreaming together about, okay. I know what that demon looks like, but what can our imagination do in relationship one with another in a cooperative fashion to bring about something different? So let's scale deep in that way. Absolutely. Well, Reverend Brown, thank you so much. Um, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks, Lisa. And welcome to Baltimore, Lisa. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Hopefully many, many years uh, ahead. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. Until next time, this is Lisa Held. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.